Hi, I'm Al. This is CD Music Club. Welcome to CB Music Club, where I am, as always, joined by Will. Hello, everybody. By Nick. Hey. And by the mighty Chris. Hello. Hello, hello, I'm indeed. Sound mighty there. I don't know if I was successful or not. How are you, old chaps? You doing well? Yeah, pretty good. Doing okay. Mm. My old. Yeah. Uh, Side serving of COVID apart. <laughs> yes, well, at least you've been vaccinated. Yeah, that's true. Unlike the rest of us. But no, I've, I've had it. Oh, oh yeah, well, has as well, yeah. Just you and me, then, Al. This is a year run in from lockdown, isn't it? Yeah. Happy anniversary. Glad to hear you're all doing well. What have you guys been up to? What have you been listening to since our last album chat, Rubber Soul, back in the hazy days of... March 1965. Well, what have you been listening to recently? Anything new? A few weeks ago, there was some joker on um, Graham Norton. I think Nick Jonas was his name. And he was the musical act for it. And he sang a song called Spaceman. And I thought, I wonder how many other people have recorded songs with the word Spaceman in them. And believe it or Babylon not... Babylon Zoo. Yeah, 52 people have recorded songs in the years. And you've listened to all of them? I have. Have you yeah, really? <laughs> Christopher, wow. Harry Nielsen, Oasis, The Birds, Blur. My favourite one of all of those is I'm an Urban Spaceman by the Bonzos. Of course it is, yeah. One of my favourite mm-hmm. songs. Mm-hmm. Babylon Zoo had their Spaceman. Was that a Levi advert song or something like that? I think it was, yes. It was Another definitely advert an advert one. of some sort. I yeah. saw the band who became Babylon Zoo zoo at King Tut's Wawa Hut in Glasgow, I guess a couple of years before that single, and I didn't like them. He was someone famous's brother, wasn't he? I seem to remember. They his always sister are. Was also a, well, no, his sister was also a more successful music act. can't remember who. Oh. His name was Jeb or Zeb. Jez. I was thinking it was Jez. Jez. Could, something along those lines. Yeah, it kind of sounds we, rude. We find out. I'm surprised one of you out. isn't looking this up in Wikipedia at the moment. I'm just about to. Yeah. Oh, right. oh, actually, I've got I've, I've gone wrong. I'm looking for Spaceman Three. That's wrong entirely, <laughs> isn't it? What is the name? Babylon Zoo. Babylon Zoo. Yeah. Whilst that's happening, on I've also dusted off an album by John Cooper Clark, Snap, Crackle, and Pop, and more of that later. And that, lads, is how you do a teaser. Well, I'm teased. <laughs> Nick, what have you been listening to? <laughs> I've been listening to one of the bands that we were listening to in the last Singles Club, actually, a mm-hmm. band called Holy Hive. Ooh, um, wow. And I went and listened to their album, which has been absolutely loving. Really good groove, sort of soul-sounding record, a little bit reminiscent of the things I've talked about in the past, Michael Kiwanuka and Mm -hmm. that that kind of vein, but I've been really enjoying that record. It's really well recorded. And then I went back in time. I don't quite know how I ended up there, but I was listening to Credence. Oh, Oh, yeah. I like a bit of Credence. Who doesn't like a bit of Credence, right? Well, exactly. So I'd happened across the album Green River on... uh, Spotify and was uh, blasting that a little bit the other day. That was good fun. Creedence are one of those bands, you're always surprised by how many of their songs you actually know, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, I listened to a best of uh, while travelling to work at some point last year and I was like, oh yeah, I know this one. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know. I, I didn't know that was them, and so on. Chris, have you found out Babylon Zoo yet? Yeah, he didn't have a famous sister. <laughs> <laughs> it was a Levi as advert, as you said. It was their first single. It went straight to number one, and they never had another hit. A genuine one-hit wonder. A genuine one-hit They're wonder. They're very rare, because yeah. most people who get thought of as one-hit wonders, the follow-up yeah. single is usually a lesser hit, but like, you know, gets number 25 or something like that. And that's a hit, right? Yeah, That's good enough to be on top of the number pops. 25, I think. Yeah. yeah. Chris, what have you <laughs> been listening to in the last couple of weeks then? I don't know why, but I got back into the Those Back catalogue for oh, reasons that yeah. I can't quite explain. Soul Mining and Infected. Did Infected come out in 88, the year we're talking about? I don't I think, think it was. I think it's slightly earlier than that. that. Yeah. yeah, but um, very nice to reconnect with Mr. Johnson. Dusk was a very good album as well. That came out a little while afterwards. There were probably two or three albums after. I think um, Johnny infected. Marr played... But Johnny Marr did play with The, the yeah, for yeah. a while, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, we saw them actually live in Glasgow at the concert hall a couple of years uh-huh. ago. Mm-hmm. Good show. A quality yeah. yeah. I've listened to a hell of a lot of music since our last album, but nearly all of it's been by R.E.M., and we'll be talking about that later. Mm-hmm. And uh, and also just checking out other albums of AT8 to choose my favourite album. So there's nothing to really talk about here. I have, though, like you were saying about our last Singles Club, Nick, when I was finishing up the edit for the podcast, as I always try to do, I purchased the singles that we cover. And about two minutes, uh, I could be exaggerating, but like immediately after I purchased the Dispirited Spirits um, reverie song that we picked as the favourite of the week I got a message from uh, Rodrigo who is the Spirit of Spirits sort of saying hey, thanks for buying the single and I thought this is quite nice of him and we entered into a bit of an email conversation I've just been asking him about his sort of background in music apparently he's been playing guitar since he was seven years old which is just Whoa. ridiculous started experimenting with electronic music when he was 12 and decided presumably a lockdown thing like we've all made these plans that he was a year ago going to try and make himself an album and he has actually done so and it's released tomorrow so by the time anyone hears this it will have been released it's called Fragments of a Dying Star concept album about losing yourself searching for a higher purpose in life and a place amongst the stars oh gosh here um, we all yeah it's a, it's a good uh, title for an album yeah he, he, like he just comes across as a, a really great lad He's a guitarist mainly plays a bit of bass a little bit of keyboards wants to be a drummer as well more interested in the feel of how to do things rather than being technical sort of virtuoso which basically sounds like me yeah. only much younger much more motivated and probably much better looking as well yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's recorded the entire album entirely by himself including doing the mixing and the mastering because he says he couldn't afford he's only 17 he couldn't afford to get anyone else to do it and uh, you should go to Dispirited Spirits on Bandcamp give it a listen and frankly buy it well I bought the single and me so I will I will go and check out the album yeah the other thing I listened to the other day or watched on YouTube was a video of Bruno Mars doing an Elvis impersonation at the age of four oh on stage God. in full Elvis outfit uh, in front of an audience in a club somewhere and it, it's absolutely remarkable <laughs> you'll find it on YouTube I'm sure but he's astonishing alright or ahaha uh-huh. well, <laughs> yeah. nice what are you lads drinking tonight well chamomile tea tonight I've been given a few more steroids to take this week and I found that the combination of alcohol and steroids is just too mm. unpredictable How, so. how's the weightlifting coming along <laughs> <laughs> What about yourself, Nick? I'm drinking Stout Eric, mm. which is the Brussels Stout. Ah, see what they've done there. Uh, yeah, indeed. <laughs> it's quite nice, actually. 
medicinal, given my vaccination yesterday, I thought I'd better drink something. Lime, that, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, I've heard that um, so it's good for COVID. Are there any lawyers listening? I don't. I don't mean that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a joke. Your Honour. I've told you this before, my, my grandmother got stout on prescription when she was uh, pregnant with my father. Chris, what are you drinking? I'm drinking Lidl's famous Purple Panther Porter. Purple Ooh. Panther Porter? Yeah, I've it's, seen that uh, in Lidl. Tastes as good as it sounds. I'm on cheap New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Very nice. Plenty of it. I'm I hear that comes tomorrow. in a box. It does come in a box, yeah. <laughs> I think wine boxes have been enjoying a bit of a vogue again, haven't they? Because... Obviously, everyone's drinking lots more during lockdown than they ever have, but people generally well, don't necessarily want to kind of neck a whole bottle. So um, your box has the advantage of right. you just kind of take a couple of glasses, but it keeps it keeps it drinkable for longer. Yeah, so that's true. Can, um, I was thinking, though, that the problem with the bottles is not quite enough in it. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Next up, Nick is going to give us a little pre-see of 1988. Nineteen eighty-eight was quite an interesting year of global unrest and political intrigue and murder. There was upheaval in Europe and Eastern Europe. There was upheaval in South America and Central America. There was upheaval in the Middle East. The Soviet Union was beginning to dissolve. Mikhail Gorbachev had introduced perestroika, so they'd begun the economic restructuring of the Soviet states, and we'd see the fall of the Berlin Wall the following year and the end of the Cold War. We had the Iran-Contra affair. Osama bin Laden formed Al-Qaeda in August of 1988. George W. Bush, of course, beat Dukakis to succeed Reagan. And in December, on the 21st Pan Am flight, 103 blew up over Lockerbie, killing 270 people. There was another disaster actually earlier in the year in July, the Piper Alpha disaster. Oil production platform in the North Sea exploded, the fires killed 165 oil workers and two rescue mariners. I think there's only 65 people survived. Other things that were going on in 1988, Tim Berners-Lee gave a talk about the World Wide Web at CERN. That was the first time he'd come out and publicly talked about what that could become. It'll never catch on, though. <laughs> yeah, indeed. There was some exciting sporting activity, starting with the Winter Olympics in February in Calgary, which were famous for two stories of sporting, certainly not excellence. Can anyone remember who I'm talking about? Eddie the Eagle. And presumably Michael, the Jamaican bobsleigh team as well. And the well. Jamaican bobsleigh oh, yes, team as well. So you had Michael, Eddie, the Eagle, <laughs> Edwards, and uh, the Jamaican bobsleigh team. And actually both of those stories were made into films. Yeah, yeah uh, both was, actually a lot more enjoyable than you would think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you had Cool Runnings in 93. And do you know, I haven't actually seen Eddie, the Eagle, which was released I 2016. Is it really, good? In fact, I bought the T-shirt. 
I'll wear it next time. That was the Winter Olympics. Then we had Euro 88, which was held in Germany and won by the Netherlands. Van Basten goal. Van Basten goal. Van Basten goal. My word, what a goal that was. Going on, we had then the Summer Olympics in Seoul. Was that the Ben Johnson year as well? Yes, it was. Oh my God, sporting scandals as well. I know, absolutely. The other big story of those Olympics was Florence Griffith Joyner won the 100 metres, the 200 metres, the 4 by 100, won gold and all those things. And her 200 metre record still stands to this day. Was it really? Wow. Which is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were lots of people born in 1988. I have picked three randomly. Adele, Rihanna and Sergio Aguero. Doesn't he play for Manchester City? He does. But his his second album's brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Kenneth Williams died in 1988, as did Kim Philby, Raymond Carver, Roy Orbison... And Nico. In music, U2's Joshua Tree won Album of the Year at the Grammys. I think Paul Simon's Graceland won Record of the Year. Celine Dion won the Eurovision Song Contest. Oh, wow. French-Canadian singer representing Switzerland. Ne partez pas sans moi. Très bien. Merci. There we have it, 1988. Lovely. Thanks, Nick. So the random factor for this episode pulled up the year 1988 and the album that I chose was Green by R.E.M., their first major label album. A bit of background about R.E.M., first of all. They are quite famously from Athens, Georgia, and they formed back in 1980 when Michael Stipe and Peter Buck met in the record store that Peter Buck worked in. Michael Stipe says that it turns out that he, Stipe, was buying all the records that Peter Buck had been saving for himself. A mutual friend called Kathleen O'Brien introduced them to Bill Berry and Mike Mills. Berry and Mills had been childhood friends, went to high school together and had played in several bands beforehand and far, far more experienced musicians. The four of them agreed they were going to collaborate on a few songs to no particular end. Played the first gig, 5th of April, 1980. It was Kathleen O'Brien's birthday party and they became extremely popular in Athens and the surrounding area very, very quickly to the point that that year they all dropped out of university to concentrate on the band. They recorded the first single almost exactly a year after the first gig, Radio Free Europe, and then later in 1981 recorded the first EP, Chronic Town, which got touted around by the producer, Mitch Easter, and they were offered a major record deal by RCA at the time, but turned it down to sign with indie label IRS. They released five albums with IRS, Murmur, Reckoning, Fables of the Reconstruction, Life's Rich Pageant and Document, but once their five-album contract was up, they informed IRS before Document was released that they were be signing with another label as they weren't happy with the overseas distribution and I think that particularly applied to the UK where they were extremely popular over here but I don't think it was that easy to get hold of their albums. They had an amicable split though. IRS put out not a best of but a compilation album magnificently titled Eponymous shortly after they left the label which was the first REM album I ever had and it is a great album. Do any of you know it? No. Yeah. If you're not familiar with REM or even if you're not familiar with their early stuff I think this is the perfect gateway it covers all of their albums up to that point. So yes they had the amicable split with IRS and they found themselves in a bidding war with uh, obviously every major label wanting to sign them up and they eventually decided to go with Warner Brothers 
brothers. And they argue that their motivation was not money, but that they would have total creative freedom, and Warner's offered them that. So they went into Ardent Studios in Memphis, Tennessee, in May 1988 to begin the recording, stayed there from July, and then moved to Bearsville Sound Studios in Bearsville, New York, till September 88, finishing the recording and doing the mixing. And it was released in November, 7th of November in the UK, the 8th of November, the day of the US presidential election it was released there to coincide because it is a fairly political album. It was co-produced by the four band members and by Scott Litt, who'd also been the co-producer with him on Document, the previous album. They originally planned it to be a rock half and an acoustic half, but they had too many rock songs, so that particular plan went out the window and they ended up just being mixed up, which I think is actually probably a good thing. It's not really regarded these days as being one of their best albums. But at the time, it was a fairly large critical success, and it was a commercial success. It's pretty much gone platinum everywhere. It's no out of time or automatic for the people on the scale of its success, but it did well. And although it seems largely forgotten, I think, these days, well regarded at the time. Song 89, the title, you would think, given that this was released in November 1988, would be referring to the year 89. But apparently, and I did make a half-hearted effort to verify this, if you go through R.E.M.'s back catalogue up to this point, there are 88 different songs. So this literally is their 89th pop song. And I think it's a great album opener. It just explodes into life. Wonderful, weird guitar riff. The way the instruments play off one another and work around one another. I just think it's absolutely great. It's a magnificent opening to an album. What do you think? I hope you're as enthusiastic as I am about it. It's alright. <laughs> <laughs> it is a cracking opener. It's got some urgency to it. It's got some weird tension to it. It's quite an odd tune and an odd song. I came to R.E.M. for the album after this out of time I did know this song I think this is one of the singles they released from this album wasn't it it so was yes. this one before very very repetitive in the vocals quite jarring in the music but it just comes together as a great track I like it this is done to greater effect later on in the album but I love the different layers of vocals yes that you yeah. get here um, obviously Stipe is taking the four but Oh, forgive me, I don't even know their name. Uh, Mike Mills on the bass and Bill Berry on the drums both do backing vocals. It's not just vocal harmonies, it's very different layers, different things going on. And sometimes they kind of coincide, sometimes they kind of yeah. clash with each other, but it just makes for such an interesting mm. vocal construction. I think this is the last um, album where that's really quite common. Document, even more so, is like that. It's the end of the world as we know it, a song that I'm sure we all know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the chorus yeah. of that, it's got so many different vocals going on. The song, yeah. I think my favourite song on Document, Disturbance at the Heron House the last chorus of that is just mad I mean, uh -huh, <laughs> there's so uh -huh. much singing going on and they're all singing different things but it just works it just blends together really brilliantly it does turn a very simple and quite repetitive lyric into something far more interesting yeah. and it, it works really well here I love the verse lyric it's structured really well and the cadence of it just fits around what everything else is doing really brilliantly it's architecture almost the way that it's been put together it's, it's quite mm -hmm. amazing mm -hmm. I think Will I'm thinking you might be the most sceptical one about the whole affair to be honest yes and it's coming it's coming it's a great start really strong vocal attack but the middle eight is soft and gloopy i even put a 
unhappy face on my notes here because the rest of the song is great but that middle eight just seems to fall away it's still a great start definitely nick you knew this though didn't you i did i think i came to rem through document i'm not sure it's a bit hazy i do remember being excited by the hype leading up to green coming out Mm. it was a big deal they'd moved into this big label and they were everywhere in the music press at that point so everyone was quite excited i remember going to local record shop with pals on the day it came out to go and get the album i really like this album but i remember at the time not particularly liking this first song i don't know whether it was too clean compared to some of the things that came before and it seemed a little bit too clean and too clever but it has grown on me over the years and I do really like this song now. I think it's interesting you're saying about it being too clean because I think the one criticism I'd make of Green is just a bit too pristine in its sound. It doesn't kick ass the way that Document and Life's Rich Pageant do. The cleanness of the sound has gone out of fashion again and everything is all digital now, but we go to great efforts to make it sound analogue and to make it sound a bit dirtier and, and like deliberately putting the sound of the tape hiss into recordings. Life's Rich Pageant is my favourite REM album and this certainly grew on me from this moment. I was re-listening to it and going, what was I thinking? <laughs> you know, this is a great song. This was the track I jumped over when I put this record on. Oh. For a really, really long time, I had in my head the view that I did not like Out of Time, their mega breakthrough album. And I hadn't in over a decade listened to it and I stuck it on. And it turned out I just don't like losing my religion. And it's so ubiquitous that in my head it had become the album. And the rest of the album I really like. I don't know anything after Monster. And I think of all the songs on all the albums up to and including Monster, Losing My Religion is my least favourite R.E.M. song. It won't surprise you to know that that's one of my favourite favorite. songs. Of course it is. <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a couple of songs, well, more than a couple in my life, that I can actually remember exactly where I was when I first heard it, and that's one of them. Oh, where were you? In a student flat down in Reading. I was hoping for a better story than that. Yeah. <laughs> Having a far deeper familiarity with Out of Time, when I was first listening to Green, it sounded like a blueprint for Out of Time but a less developed version. I've since changed my mind, having listened to it lots. Mm. Um, but yeah, those first couple of listens to, I was thinking, this track sounds like this track from Out of Time, this track sounds like this track from Out of Time, and it felt like they'd done the same trick twice, but better without of time. I think that every R.E.M. album is an evolution of what they've done before. Every album does build on what they've done before and do something mm-hmm. different, and they've always tried to do something different with every album, and I think that's quite admirable. And yes, you can hear <clears throat> what's coming. We'll talk more about it when we get to the songs yeah. that do sound more like it. But you can also hear on Document, the song King of Birds on Document, Peter Buck plays Dulcimer on it, and you can hear out of time and automatic for the people in that song yeah that's probably the first example of that sort of folksy acoustic thing that they were going to go on and do you might be surprised by this i'm actually quite interested in a lot of the lyrics in this album because i know i'm always like guy who doesn't listen to lyrics the lyrics man no yeah but i think there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on here and it's all very rem and it all muses me a great deal pop song 89 i think is quite interesting lyrically because like so many of the songs what the hell is it actually about and the prevailing view amongst critics or bloggers or whatever 
everyone online seems to be that it's a pop song about pop songs. But I'm not sure about that. I think it's just about newfound fame and the discomfort of finding yourself talking to strangers and mm. not knowing what to say to them. So I was coming at it from your second, more literal interpretation. It's all cool conversations between strangers. Mm. I think Michael Stipe's lyrics can often sound very meaningful and don't really mean anything. Mm. Or they do mean something, but it's incredibly oblique and they mean something to him that maybe doesn't come oh, across. Yeah, possibly. I think we're all agreed. We like a good opener, right? And this is a good opener. It is a good opener. In terms of the lyricism, you can hear what he's saying on this album to a much yes. greater extent than you can on most things. Anyway, track two, Get Up. Oh God, there's more tracks, aren't there? <laughs> Get Up and he didn't know this until Michael Stipe announced it on stage this song's about Mike Mills and how he really struggles to go to bed in the morning and it's Michael Stipe admonishing him for not getting up and making more of his life because like he's not done well with his life right I mean jeez oh But another rocker carrying on the good start, I think. I think it's a cracker. It is a cracker. I really like this song. Interesting thing about that little midsection. <laughs> I, I've read quite a lot of uh, little snippets that I don't care if they're true or they're good. But apparently the music boxes in the middle, you know the bit I mean? Apparently there are 12 of them because Bill Berry had a dream <laughs> and there had to be exactly 12 music boxes in the midsection. <laughs> That's a good dream. Beats my Tears of Fears one from last week. No, I disagree. Your Tears of Fears one's brilliant. There's nothing to top that. (laughs) (laughs) Will, Mr. Skeptical, do you like this one? Yeah, very strong vocal start. No misperformances in the middle eight. Really liked the guitar work. The riffs were very nice. So yeah, did like this one. And it followed on nicely from the um, the track one as well. This is a good rollicking tune. It barrels along quite nicely. There's a nice um, separation between the verse and the chorus. Quite shouty, which fits the um, subject matter, I suppose. You mm. can just imagine Stipe there leaning over, hollering. I might have to actually introduce this song to the morning routine in my house. Oh, <laughs> yes. All you hear is time stand still in travel. You feel such peace and absolute stillness till the doesn't end but slowly drifts into sleep the stars are the greatest thing you've ever seen and they're there for you for you alone you are the everything you are the everything this is what you're saying this is here comes uh, out of time in a few years this is the first song that uh, Peter Buck is playing mandolin on. It's also, this is a, the first example, I think, where they started swapping instruments around as well. So mm. Peter Buck's playing mandolin on this, and Bill Berry, the drummer, is playing bass, and Mike Mills, bassist, is playing accordion. Oh, that's an accordion. I, I thought it was a reed organ or something like that. No, it's an accordion. You know, I'm in awe of anyone who can play oh, yeah, accordion. I've yeah. tried. It's like, what are all these buttons actually for? <laughs> And you have to push it in and out while you're like, what? What? Can you hand me that guitar, please? (laughs) But it's kind of, it's like a piano, but arranged in concentric circles, isn't it? Is it? Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) 
But there are a lot of buttons, I agree. What do we make of You Are The Everything then? It took a while to come around to this one and I listened to the album a few times without really hearing it and then I heard it and it's one of my favourites, I think. It's such a complex vocal part. and He sings continuously. There's barely a break in the singing. Talking of concentric circles, he is kind of singing in mm. circles but then they go off on little spirals and come back again and it's like a song cycle. Again, it's one of those that feels deceptively simple because it's almost acoustic, isn't it? And there's not a huge mm. instrumental bed to it. But what there is, is so precise and so beautiful. Love it. I think it's an extraordinary song. The interplay between the instruments, again, is quite complex. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that complicated going on on any individual instrument, but they fit together really nicely. I think dynamically it's really good as well. I think the middle eight, you know, it goes minor key. And then when it comes back out of there, it's sort of built up a bit. I think, you know, dynamics are great. I think it's a great song as well. Will, what were you going to say uh, about it? Well, it was my first three ticker of this album. Wow. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. That's the REM that I know because I came in at a time mm. with them. It's really lovely. Great song. Nick? I think this song is absolutely extraordinary. This is one of my favourite songs of all time. Wow. Wow. I just absolutely adore this song. I always loved it. I think at one stage it soundtracked a break up for me as well. It's oh. one of those songs that really means a lot that I return to constantly. It makes me cry, this song. Oh, Nick, you're so nice that I can't imagine you ever dumping someone or being dumped by someone. I can't believe you have a breakup song. It's warm, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. It's just a great big hug, isn't it? A nice change of pace as well after the mm. frantic openers. Next up, one of the famous songs from the album, Stand. Stand in the place where you live Big hit single. I mean, not a huge hit single, obviously, but, you know, it was a reasonably big hit. You probably knew it at the time. The band are often quoted as not liking this song and thinking that it's very shallow, but I think the band often say they don't like anything they've done <laughs> and that everything they've ever done is shallow. I think Stand is great. I love it. I don't agree about the lyrics being facile. I think they're quite clever and I think they're imploring us to care about our local environment and not just about the world. To think about the place where you live and wonder why you haven't before. And also the dance in the video is great. I don't know if any mm -hmm. of you watched yeah, the video and got up out your seat and did the dance like I did. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> because it's really easy and it's fun. <laughs> yeah, there's not many dances I can do, but I thought I can do that one. <laughs> I love the, the two California key changes at the end. Again, all the instruments just work beautifully off one another. I think it's a great pop song. Love it. Nick, are you a fan? Yeah, it's quite good. <laughs> I mean, I do like this song and it's not the outstanding song on the, on the album, but it is a great rock song. Love the dance. Chris, stand. It's a fun song, isn't it? What I was saying about Green at first listen, feeling like a blueprint for Out of Time. This is the shiny happy people. Again, at first listen, throwaway pop song, but there's a bit of substance to this one. But this was where I first got hit over the head with the levels of vocals coming in. It's two very different, in the chorus especially, and they overlap. You know, they're singing, they're starting the, the second yeah. line before the first line's finished, and it just creates a kind of an acoustic kind of, I don't know, whirlpool in your head, and it just has a very, very lovely 
pleasing effect. It just creates its own rhythm. It creates its own dynamics. And yeah, great video. It's a change of pace as well from what we've had before. It just suddenly it's a kind of little ray of sunshine. Will, ditto, basically. The way the vocals work, really nice. Reach out for me. This is my world and I am world leader pretend. So track five, World Leader Pretend. This had the lyrics printed on the inner sleeve of the album. I remember this because I had this album on vinyl. I read that. I, I, yeah. Like I mentioned it earlier. And it's the first lyrics that they ever had printed on a record, apparently because it's the heart of the album. World Leader Pretend is the song that I didn't like. Back then, it was my least favourite one on the album. Listening back to it now, it's not my favourite by any means, but it's a much better song than I had given it credit for. Again, it's very interesting lyrically, and it's well-performed. And actually, I would argue that this song, more than the mandolin songs, this is the one that sounds like future R.E.M. This is the blueprint for the band are going to become. Much more than the mandolin songs, I think. I mean, obviously the mandolin features quite a lot in the next two albums, but there's a feel about this. It doesn't sound like anything they've done before, and it does sound like the band are going to become. Mm. Yeah, that's a fair point. What's it all about? What, what are the words actually about? I mean, lots of like Cold War references in there, and uh, but it, it seems to be about berating yourself for, what, something? For like having a big ego? Or what? I mean, I don't know. What do you think? I can't distinguish the lyrics clearly enough to give you an answer to that. They're printed on a sleeve, man. I know, but I haven't got <laughs> the sleeve. Not my favourite track. I agree with what you're saying that it is a good signpost to what R.E.M. become later. I find what R.E.M. became later a bit dull and a bit worthy compared to mm. their more joyous earlier stuff. Just like I've listened to a lot of R.E.M., I've read a lot of reviews, I've read a lot of opinion about mm. this album, mm -hmm. and it is a very highly regarded song. Mm. But I think often your critics, your bloggers, they are more interested in the lyrical content of songs and the musical content of songs. I'm slightly swayed by the times. You know, it's been a rubbish year, hasn't it? And I'm seeking out things that are a bit more uplifting and a bit more joyous. Whereas I quite like yeah. to wallow in misery, so <laughs> I do like this song, I think. Um, I like the dark and disturbing imagery in the lyrics, and I do think this is a good song. I, I actually agree with you, what you're saying about as being sort of pretentious of some of the more mm. overblown stuff that R.E.M. became, but I, I still quite like this song. I said this about a couple of songs before, but the middle eight is fantastic. With the slide guitar, uh, or it's a pedal steel guitar rather, the soaring vocal and so on, I think, I think it's really good. Best bit of the song for me. Will, I think this is one you probably liked. It was a bit low-key for me. I think it's a good song. Definitely it's a good song, but it was a bit low for me. Did you give it one tick? Yes, one tick. That was one tick talk. Wrong Child of the Mellow Songs. This is the one 
that always got me and actually still does. The very last line that is sung by the lower voice when it goes, I'm not supposed to be like this, but it's okay, in the most resigned fashion, almost breaks me every time I listen to this song. It is the saddest noise ever committed to music, almost. It's absolutely heartbreaking. I love this song. I'm not a huge fan of mandolin R.E.M. I much prefer rocking R.E.M. But this, to me, is the best of that sound that they ever did. I've been thinking a lot about a guy, um, a friend called Michael Johnson. And I remember a number of occasions just being around his house and we were listening to this album. I think this was his favourite R.E.M. song. It's not my favourite, but um, it is a good song. Anyway, hi, Michael. Reminiscing about Friends Apart, what do you think of The Wrong Child, boys? <laughs> you got another take. Well, you got another one tick, only one. Did you listen to it on headphones? Maybe but... I didn't. Maybe I should. Because um, no, no. The, the reason yeah. I say that is because the bit I'm talking about that that yeah. breaks me every time. It's so much more obvious because it's in your left ear, you oh. know. And it's a much more effective song on headphones. Oh, I'll, I think. I'll give it a go because it, it musically, I loved it. Musically, it was very good, mm. but it vocally, it, it fell flat for me. Nick, is this one of your favourites? I like it. It's not one of my favourites, but. Yeah, it's quite a moving song. It really is. It could be considered a bit mawkish, I suppose, and a bit over the top. I think it's fairly low-key. I think it could lay it on a lot thicker than it actually does. Yeah. Which is fairly thick. <laughs> it's plaintive, isn't it? It's almost choral, I think. It's almost got kind of hymnal qualities to it. A little bit of the way the Fleet Foxes early stuff is almost like a hymn. Again, it was one that I skipped over on first listens to, and then it hit. It's a strong one. So on that mournful note, that's the end of the first side, which, here's another thing about R.E.M., right? Not every single one of their albums, almost all of their albums, certainly the, the vinyl version, they don't have a side A and a side B. This was the air side, mm. and the other side is the metal side, and they have this on, I say, Chronic Town's got the side one is Chronic Town, side two is Poster Torn. Fables of Reconstruction is A side and another side, <laughs> and so on. Lots of terrible bad jokes. Mm. Another one, actually... You had the album on vinyl back in the day, Nick, yeah? I think I bought it on cassette. I had the vinyl copy of it. And one thing about the vinyl, like this big orange cover with R.E.M. green on the front of it and the tree trunk section <clears> on the back <throat> of it. But on the front cover, the R in green and the R in R.E.M. both had a glossy four over them. And the stand on the back cover isn't track four, it's track R. And apparently this is because it's just it was a typo. Um, when they were typing out the track listing because R and 4 are next to one another on the keyboard. <laughs> Stand was typed out as track R. But it looks like there's hidden meanings, but it's not. They're just having a laugh. <laughs> and this reminded me also of, on the Fables of the Reconstruction album, there's two songs, Can't Get There From Here and Feeling Gravity's Pull, where they don't have apostrophes in the title. And the album Life's Rich Pageant, again, doesn't have an apostrophe in the title. I have read in the past that this is because the band had a typewriter that was broken and it couldn't do apostrophes. <laughs> so when they typed it out, they had to do it with an apostrophe and they insisted that the titles got kept that way when the records were released. <laughs> the beauty of being on an indie label. There's just so much of that playfulness about R.E.M. And they come across as being terribly, terribly serious, I think. Po-faced, uh, well-meaning. But there's a lot of that kind of playfulness. I, I find it all quite amusing, to be quite honest. One of the overarching things, I think, about R.E.M. is that they seem such a gang. Yes. You know, there's constant jokes and wordplay and references and they're just entertaining themselves half the time. That's one of the things I love about bands. 
you get mm. these units that do their thing and you can't replicate it. You could change the personnel and suddenly the DNA mm. changes and it becomes something else. And their lineup never changed. They never lost or gained anyone. Bill Berry left after he, he had his aneurysm. I don't know if you mm. remember that in the Monster Tour. I think he just had enough of the strain of touring. He's now a farmer. In their late, final you know, breakup was amicable, it wasn't Absolutely. It? They just decided they weren't going to do it any longer. Yeah. Time stop. I've got a vague recollection of Roger Taylor, the drummer in Duran Duran. I think when he left the band, he went off to become a farmer. That was the airside, so metal side, track one, Orange Crush. Orange Crush again not my favourite on the album but it's interesting it's a bit different and it's another one with the interesting different layers of vocals going on really good guitar in this really like the guitar line it's vintage Peter Buck apparently Michael Stipe's father was a helicopter pilot in the Vietnam War although this song isn't about his father it's apparently more about the effects of Agent Orange mm. on Vietnam vets. The coming in fast over me line, I think, is a direct reference to them being sprayed with the stuff. His lyrics are so bleak, although it's about a thing, there's no obvious references to any of it. It's a very political song. I think it's a very good song. When I listen to songs, I often, you know, I'll pick out the bass line and I think, oh, that's interesting. I'll, I'll go away and play that because it's really nice. This is the first song off this album that I could actually go... There's a bass line, and the way it's synced with the drums is is really beautiful, really nice. This was a three-ticker for me. An oh, outstanding wow. track. Nick, how do you feel about Orange Crush? I kind of like it. It's not my favourite song on the album. I like Bill Berry's drumming. Yes, I think the drum's great on this song, yeah. But um, it's not a standout track for me. If you were listening to this in the way it was originally intended as an album with two halves, I think it's a very good opener to the second side. Yeah. It was the track I was most familiar with mm. coming to this album. So it's kind of harder to judge on its own um, with fresh mm, ears and yeah. the others. It's angry, it's energetic, it's got that machine gun drumming. It's a good rollicking song. It sets the tone for side two quite well. What about Turn You Inside Out? I like this. Yeah, I yeah. do like this. Yeah, yeah, I like this a lot. Again, lyrically interesting. I think it's about the relationship between performer and their audience and the power that you hold over them. <laughs> I could turn you inside out, but I choose not to do it. And I think this ties in with Pop Song 89 in that respect, where it's about a band who've been quite underground and quite successful who's suddenly become really quite famous. You know, the one I love elevated them to a level of genuine fame. It must have changed the the dynamic between them and their audience. And I think this song, uh, in part, is about that. Dunno, though. <laughs> 
what I do know is I really like the guitar in it. Lovely, powerful guitars there. But all the energy that that and the drums created got dissipated by what I see as, or hear as, quite a um, dreary vocal. It just sucked the energy out of the, the music of the song. I think that's interesting. Um, I don't love this song. And I think the second half of the album is as good as the first half of the album. This song is one of the reasons why. I think it's a bit too long. And I think it does lack the hooks. Subject matter's interesting, you know, politically it's interesting. And the guitar's great, but I think it's one of the weakest songs on the album. Do you like the drums on this? Agreed. I am not the type of dog that could keep you waiting For no good reason Run a carbon black test on my job And you will find It's all been said before Speaking of songs that aren't my favourite, Hair Shirt, right? Yeah, I just took a deep sigh when I saw the title of this one. I thought, God, self-flagellating. I think it's necessary... After the intensity of Orange Crush and Turn You Inside Out, I think it needs a song like Hair Shirt, but it's twice as long as it should mm. be. It's lovely, but it just goes on a little bit. It's my least favourite song on the album. Again, to repeat what I was saying about the blueprint for Out of Time, this to me is a half-cooked version of Half a World Away. Is that what it's called? Yeah, I, I think that's Which valid, yeah. Which is a fantastic song. Stipe seemed to be prone, the more they went on, to adopting affectations that could be very mannered and didn't always work. There's a little bit of that in this. I quite like this. It's worth mentioning the recording process. The three musicians would get together, they would write the songs and they would record demos. Those would go to Stipe and he would write lyrics for them. And then they would go into the studio and record them again with the singing. This one just sounds like the band are just playing the same riff over and over and over for him to put some vocals on it. And then they haven't really fleshed it out beyond that. And I think it's a pity that they didn't or just didn't just make it a bit shorter. It's an okay song. And in some ways, for me, the dreary vocal works a little bit better than Turn You Inside Out. But a low point of the album for me. It seems very long. It just goes on. Whereas the next track, I Remember California, which is the longest song on the album. I love this. I remember traffic jams, motor boys and girls with tans, nearly This is a magnificent song. Oh my God, I love this song. Again, what the hell are the lyrics about? <laughs> the lyrics are great. Some of the singing is brilliant. Again, with the backing vocals, the low ebb, high tide bit, it's just fantastic. Uh-huh. In what sense does he remember California? I've never heard you worry about lyrics as much as you worry about the lyrics on this album, Al. In some way, it's refreshing. It's because we never talk about albums from when I was a teenager, when I actually cared about such <laughs> things. Ah, oh, fair enough, fair enough. There was a window. There was a window of about six three months, years where six I cared. Six gap where you're actually listening to what other yeah, people yeah, yeah. said and then shuts down. <laughs> on you go. Huh? What? It was Al's emotional high point <laughs> right there. Emotional point, really. Uh. <laughs> anyway, 
I think this is a great song, and I think it's all the better for hair shirt coming before it as well. Mm. Context sometimes is everything, yeah, right? Just, yeah, yeah. I think this is one point. case where that's it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, good song, good song. I've got nothing more to add to your <laughs> effusive, gushing um, <laughs> praise for it. You were warned. <laughs> I think with this one, the um, the drum and bass again work exceptionally well. It's a really good tune, and it builds really well to the finale. There he is, rocking out. So, yeah. yeah, but do I love yeah. it? Maybe not. Good song. I to the last song which has no title and um oh this is great isn't it's it it's lovely it's so different from everything that's come before when the the little instrumental duh, 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 thing comes in it's yeah. just such a lovely warm fuzzy an accord is that an accordion don't know what it is i think it's an organ i right. think it, uh-huh. i think mike mill was playing the organ rather than accordion in that but there's no bass at that point. I don't know mm, if you noticed. Uh-huh. It's quite interesting that it is so warm, but there's no bottom end mm. to it. Peter Buck is playing drums on this song. Bill Berry's playing guitar. So before you start laying into the drums, well, bear in mind it's the guitarist well, that on drums. That actually makes a lot of sense on what I was going to say. <laughs> because what I was going to say, the kick drum is inconsistent on the pressure. So it's dropping out as you're listening to it. And when I was listening to the song, there was something about it that was bothering me. And it was that kick drum believe it or not. I love the amateurishness of the drumming in it. Yeah, yeah. it makes sense now. Sounds deliberate. It's a kind of stutter, but it works. No, it sounded like his leg yeah. was getting tired. <laughs> it probably was. The high bit of the instrumental is like a carousel and then the stuttering drum underneath, they just come together beautifully. I don't think Michael Stipe and I would get along, ever would have got along not? if we were to I, meet. Mm. No. I mean, we might get along in as much as we could be polite to one another and friendly, but we would never be friends. I don't think that we'd be compatible personalities at all. But you're not friends with many people, though, Al. Mm. <laughs> there is that. He does come across as being such a beautiful man. Yeah. This song, the sheer warmth of it, yeah. and yeah. and the love that he's pouring out to, I guess, his friends, his family, the people that he misses when he's out on tour, it's just gorgeous. I love it. Great tune, great closer, great end. There's something about Michael Stipe, and I don't know whether his growing confidence as an artist was the thing where he seems to have decided some point I'm confident enough to not take myself too seriously I'm just going to explore stuff that I'm interested in I'm going to put things out there and it'll be what it'll be and that's part of being an artist and I'm just going to follow my curiosity and that's at the point when the press all decided he was taking himself too seriously (laughs) 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 and he sort of got this terrible reputation when none of which he has sought and he's had to battle against because actually he's trying to do something entirely different he comes across as not being god how do i put this without sounding horrible but i'm not not being very good in social situations and that must work against him when being interviewed and all. he's not a sting and he's not a bono is he he's more human he's more connected he's more laid back i get the impression obviously i've never met any of them but he seems a bit more relatable than yeah. the other mm. two at a certain level of pop stardom people are wanting him to be the mm. godlike messiah character 
which he refuses to be, and then they say he's awkward yeah. or he's artistic, which is portrayed as some sort of pretentious affectation. I'll tell you another term for pretentious affectation. Rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> well, right? yeah. Absolutely. I think it's wrong to heap it all on his shoulders. I mean, we've talked about this. The REM isn't Michael Stipe. REM is four fairly equal, from what I can make out, mm. players. You would say the same about U2, presumably. I mean, the way that they work. Mm. They're a democratic band, but everything is piled on the front man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every REM song that they wrote was always Barry Bucknell's Stipe, uh-huh. was who it was credited to. The four of them in alphabetical mm-hmm. order, there was no ego about it. And when Bill Berry quit the band, it was always Buck Mill Stipe. I don't know how they split up the royalties. I don't know how they decided that. But they always put up the public face where it was always the four of them. Always did everything the right way. And that came down to when they split up, they did it the yeah. right way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Berry Buck Mill Stipe thing is always something mm. that struck me as the way that bands should do it. It doesn't matter how it works in the background. Present yourself as a united front. It's a gang. It's Absolutely. supposed to be a band. Yeah. yeah. So that's the end of the album. And I'd like to know what your final thoughts are. Did you like it, Al? I thought it was all right. (laughs) Will, what's your view on the album? Difficult album to listen to because I said I came in on Out of Time, which was much more polished. Mm. Having listened to it, I think it's a very, very good album. And this, you know, had I heard this, this would have made me buy the next one and the next one and the next one in the same way. So I was very pleased to, to listen to it. Well, I'd absolutely recommend that you go back and listen to the previous yeah, albums. Yeah, no, I, I will. Especially the two before it, Leisure Pageant and Document. I think there are some bands that I've come across kind of midway through their career and then I've gone and hoovered up all the old stuff and then the new stuff. And there are others that I've come to midway through and I've just then kind of gone forward with them and not gone back into them. And R.E.M. is one of those. It was interesting listening to this. I've got two criticisms of this album. I don't think it really hangs together as a coherent album. I think it's 11 tunes, some of which are great, most of which are good. But because they're all very, very different, it doesn't really feel like it's got an overriding sound or theme to it. And the other thing, with the exception of Stand, I don't think I could dance to any of these tunes. You could dance a pop song, Eight and Angel. Could you? you More than Stand. Yeah, it's faster. Uh, Yeah, but it's just... I'm sure I have. It's it's quite angry. Anyway... Other than those two minor criticisms, <laughs> um, it's, I, I, I really enjoyed it. It's certainly a grower. I like it a lot more now than the first couple of times through. I'm really glad to hear that from you and Will because when you pick an album that you know that you like, you obviously want the others to like it. It would just make me sad if you didn't, so I'm pleased about that. Oh, we're not here to make you sad. You're here to express your opinion, and if you didn't like it, you didn't like it, but clearly you do. Nick, as a man who knew it already... How do you feel about going back to it? I enjoyed it immensely. It was a great opportunity to listen to the whole album again. As I said, there are a couple of songs in here that I would have been listening to regularly over the years anyway. You Are the Everything, as I said, is, is one of the, those songs I go back to on a regular basis no matter what anyway. So it was interesting to go back and reevaluate one or two of the, the songs that maybe I hadn't thought I liked or tended to skip and found that given a few repeated listens, I was really appreciating those as well. It's not my favourite R.E.M. album. There are three, four, five albums probably that I would prefer in their catalogue. 
But what's interesting is it came at a very formative time for me. I, mean, I was 17 when this came out and it was a big album. I was getting excited about it. I'd already discovered them, but having got this, I then went and found everything else and stuck with them for quite a few more years. I was fortunate enough to go and be able to see them a few times. and They've always been a big band for me, one that I really admired the musicianship. They've been so influential on a lot of bands that I have loved over the years as well. I think that that's really important. I absolutely enjoyed revisiting this. Took me right back. <laughs> I agree with a lot of what you said there. You guys have gathered. I love this album, right? I've listened to all of the first... This is the sixth album. I've listened to all six of those albums and every single one of them is better than I remember. Mm. This is not my favourite R.E.M. album, but I don't think they made an album as good as this again. They peaked with Life's Rich Pageant and Document. Green is not far behind and I think Reckoning is not far behind either. I've been thinking about where are R.E.M. in the grand scheme of things, because we had the Beatles last time. I don't think there's an American Beatles, but R.E.M., there, has there been a band, even including the Beatles, who were so good for so long, who put out so many albums that were so uniformly excellent? And I'm not sure there has been. Certainly within the rock canon. I'm not sure there's there's necessarily been a band as good as R.E.M., as consistently good as R.E.M. There may be bands who've hit higher heights, but to just be as good every time as they were, I don't know. I think they're absolutely remarkable. And I think that the reputation they developed for just being a bunch of old guys who were boring, it just makes me a bit sad. So anyway, um, I'll, I'll stop banging on about how much I love R.E.M. And I'll ask you, starting with Will, what's your favourite song on the album? I think I'm going to go for You Are The Everything and just to keep consistency uh, because everybody wants to know what was the tick count. We got to 21 for this tick count for this album. I'm surprised it got that high. I honestly thought you wouldn't like this album no, very I was, much, Will. I was, I was taken by it. And I am an R.E.M. fan. I think R.E.M. are definitely in my top 10 of favourite bands. Yeah, I like them and I like this album. What about you, Chris? What's your favourite song? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to put something. I, do I? You just have to. Um, yes, that's how I'm it works. I'm <laughs> going, oh, God. Um, right, not those. That, but not. I. Mm, right, either Pop Song 89 or Untitled. Untitled, because I hadn't heard it before. Oh, lovely choice. What about yourself, Nick? been banging out on it so much that I, I can't really not choose it. You Are The Everything is just an extraordinary song for me. Well, for me, it's I Remember California, always been my favourite. I think it's great. And the longest song on the album. Everyone thinks I only like short songs. So um, that's Green. So 1988, we're going to talk a little bit about um, the other albums that came out that year and also what our favourite number ones were. There was a good year for music. I mean, we were all, sorry, we'll exclude you from this. We we were all in our, in our kind of um, latish teens at a time when music is looming large in your life. Probably 88 was one of my most formative years for music. Flicking through my vinyl collection, I lost track of the number of 1988 albums that were sitting in there. With a couple of notable exceptions, I was very British music focused at the time, which I think is 
why I didn't really get into REM at this point. But there were some amazing albums. Trying to pick the best album of this year was difficult. I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on. Morrissey's first album was out barely months after the Smiths had split up. Lots of stalwarts of the 80s British indie scene, the, the, the likes of The Fall, had albums out. you got things like Dire Straits, U2, obviously. And then we were getting the new stuff that was coming out. There was, uh, well, the second Happy Mondays album, Bummed, was out. We were getting the first the first hints of, of the baggy scene of Manchester. And then you, a lot of really interesting new indie stuff coming out, which was exciting me at the time. The first My Bloody Valentine album isn't anything. Sugar Cube's debut album, first Pixies. Well, come on, Pilgrim, I always think it's the first Pixies album, but Surfer Rosa, first Pixies album proper, came out in 88. It was just a good big year, wasn't it? There was a lot of Euro pop coming out as well at that time. We're beginnings of the Acid House movement. Jane's Addiction, Susie and the Banshees, Sonic Youth. Digimnation, yeah, wasn't Digimnation. it? Yeah, Digimnation. Bug by Dinosaur Jr. came out in 88. Again, cracking, cracking album. That was a big one for me, yeah. Just such a lot of really good stuff. And also, I mean, the pop scene was quite healthy here. You had the likes of Terence Trent Darby. Wet, wet, wet. <laughs> There was some interesting stuff across the board. I think it was a very good year for music in general. For me, it was a great albums year, but it wasn't a great singles year mm. yeah. so much. Mm. It wasn't like the early 80s where the charts, top to bottom, were amazing. But there's some good number ones. Spot for choice. I found it really hard to choose an album. So I've gone for, for one that I just thought would be a bit possibly overlooked. Uh, which is The House of Love by The House of Love, which absolutely adored at the time. Listened to it a couple of days ago for the first time in a very long time, and it is still a brilliant album. It's a tremendous album. I don't know it. It's like I was saying about The There earlier. I know some songs by them, yeah. and I like them, but they passed me by at the time. I should give it a listen. It certainly rewarded the re-listen to. Nick, what about you? The really big albums of the year were Green, and the new U2 album was... Rattle and Hum, which actually, to my mind, when it came out, was quite disappointing. I discovered Happy Mondays, and that was great. That was, uh, Bummed was a big one for me. But <laughs> there were two other elements of music. Probably one relates more to Green. There was a kind of real folky th- thing. So there was a few albums that appealed. The Waterboys, Fisherman's Blues. There was Workers' Playtime by Billy Bragg. On the other side, actually, was rap music just exploded. I really like rap music and I'd been a big fan of Run DMC, discovered the Beastie Boys. And then in 88, there was three albums that were really exciting to me. There was Public Enemies, it Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. There was The Jungle Brothers, Straight Out the Jungle. And there was Straight Out of Compton, by NWA. Those albums were really big for me, particularly the NWA one, particularly uh, a song on that called Express Yourself, which I still absolutely love. That's guaranteed to get me on the dance floor. The the album I've decided to choose is If I Should Fall From Grace With God by The Pogues. Mm -hmm. Good choice. That was almost my choice. Yeah, The Pogues is one of those bands that I've seen Uh so many times live. I grew up with my parents going to the folk club up the road. That's always been a big thing for me. Yeah. I loved the first Pogues album. In fact, the first two Pogues albums were big, but this one just when actually they sort of adopted world music and there were, you know, Spanish influences and Balkan influences and all that kind of stuff going on. It's an incredible album. 
So that's that's for me. Fine choice. What have you got, Will? Well, I'm going for Billy Bragg's Workers' Playtime. It's full of lovely, touching songs. The one that I'd put up for the playlist from that would be Waiting for the Great Leap Forward, which I think is an anthem song, brilliant song. Yeah. Whilst listening to this, I thought, well, yeah, this is Billy Bragg playing with a band. I mean, a bit like when Dylan went from being a single acoustic guitar to a full band. And then I thought, who else do I really like that put out an album that had music on it and made me feel a bit weird about it? And that was John Cooper Clark's Snap, Crackle, Bop. When I picked up the album to have another listen to it... Clear vinyl. I found that it was... Walking Back to Happiness, an album, a John Cooper Clark's <laughs> album, that I've been looking for for 15 years. So I found <laughs> it uh, amazing. Um, there's a lot of synth pop on it, which is a bit weird, but it actually works really well. The song off that album, um, Snap, Crackle, Bop, would be Beasley Street, which I think is an awesome track. Right, Big Al, what's yours tonight? Back in the day when uh, I used to go to pub quiz all the time in Stoke Newington, quite often our team name was straight out of Clapton because that's where Julian, one of our team members, lived. (laughs) There's basically three albums in 1988 that stand out for me. We've talked about Green Enough. The one you maybe thought I'd go for, Pixie Surfer Rosa. Love it. Too obvious. Not my favourite Pixies album either. My favourite is Trompe Le Monde. The standout for me even better than Green, the Wonder Stuff Eight Legged Groove Machine. <laughs> I think there's 14 songs on it. They're all short. I think there's only a couple that are over sure. three minutes long and they're only just over three minutes long. It's angry, funny, clever. I, I love Miles Hunt's idiot savant persona that he puts <laughs> on and things like It's Your Money, I'm After Baby and Give, Give, Give Me More, More, More. But the sort of more serious songs are actually my favourite ones. Like Rue the Day and I think Ruby Horse is probably my favourite song on the album. Let's rattle on to our number ones of the year then. And there were about 20. None of them particularly brilliant. But who's got what? Nick, go on, fire on. What do you fancy? There's cheesy favourites. Things like, you know, Belinda Carlisle and what have you. But actually came down to either Fairground Attractions Perfect. But yeah. I, I'm going for S-Express. Theme from S-Express. S-Express, oh. That's right. brilliant. Yep. That was on my A-list. Yeah. You can have that one though. Thank you. <laughs> It was like nothing else when it hit their top, wasn't it? It was. Um, yeah. You couldn't say that about Black Boxes right on time. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Will. What's yours? I'm going for It Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother by The Hollies. Second time around, yeah. Mm-hmm. It got more interest because it was in an advert for Miller Life beer. And that's the first time this song was actually on my radar, and it is a great song. So that is a great song. Yeah, that's what I'm choosing. Song. Good choice. What's yours, Al? It's not a terrible year for number ones. It's no 1965, but it's better than a lot of 80s years, I would imagine. Ah, toss up between two for me, really. I like Heaven is a Place on Earth. It's really good, isn't it? <laughs> That's why I kept away from that one, because I knew you'd go for it. No, I'm going for Perfect, Fairground Attractions. Oh, really? Oh. You got it. It's a great song, and it's Scottish pop, right? I've got a story about Eddie Reader as well. There was one Saturday I was hanging out with my Glasgow pals, the several times aforementioned Jody and Dave Samandi and my friend Eddie Keogh, and we got the bus into town. We're going into King Tut's, King Tut's Wawa Hut, the venue in Glasgow. When we got there, I think Eddie went to the bar and discovered that he'd dropped his wallet on the bus on the way into town. He was freaking out. He was really angry. He was really upset. He'd lost his wallet. And he was sat at the table, a bit apart from the rest of us when we were chatting. And next to Eddie was Eddie Reader from Fairground Attraction. <laughs> I'm having a chat with Dave and Jody. And then we're trying to get Eddie's attention. 
Not Eddie Reader, Eddie Keogh. <laughs> and um, so we're going, Eddie. Eddie. <laughs> Eddie. And he's sitting just in a world of his own, like really quite upset. And he's not hearing us calling on him. But of course, Eddie Reader sitting next to him is. <laughs> And we're just going, Eddie, Eddie. And she's like, what? And we're like, oh, we're not talking to you. And, and it was really embarrassing. <laughs> Eventually, we got Eddie's attention and we got him back to earth and it was all good. But um, that wasn't perfect, that situation. Ooh, <laughs> oh, see what you did with that. See what you did It there. is a more or less perfect retro pop song with a great guitar solo. So uh, that's my choice, Fairground Attraction. I think I'd spoken at one point about how I'd recently discovered that Eddie Reader's actual name is Edna. Uh, <laughs> as opposed to Ed Wood. As opposed to Edward or yeah. Edina or anything else. Edwina. Edwina. She's Edna. Her brother, Frank, is the singer in Trash Can Sinatras, who are one of my mm. favourite bands. And actually, she's married to the guitarist in Trash Can Sinatras. Chris, what's your favourite? I was tempted to go for Doctor in the TARDIS by the Time Lords, <laughs> if only to celebrate... The Justified Ancients of Moo Moo. But it is rubbish, unfortunately. <laughs> but it was an awful tune, so I can't really go there. So I'm going to go for um, The Only Ways Up by Yaz and the Plastic Population. That's Ooh, also a big, high tune. energy. Yeah, pop. Yeah, yeah. I think 88 was a bit of a golden year, all things considered, musically. Great year for albums, yeah. I think there was a lot of good stuff. Formative year for me. Yeah. And I'd imagine for Nick and for Chris as well. Yeah. In the great scheme of things, it may not have been a standout year, but for us, it was a time when we are particularly yeah. open mm. to yes. music. The only thing we have remaining then is for Will to inform us which album we'll be covering next time around. Will, over to you. Well, the year is going to be 2000. Several good contenders. PJ Harvey, Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea. Mm-hmm. Leonard Cohen, 10 New Songs, beautiful album. Lost Souls by the Doves was a contender. But what I came to in the end, because I think this could be more interesting or different to albums that we've covered before, is Since I Left You by The Avalanches. No, well. This is an um, album that had three and a half thousand clips from other tunes put into it. And I think they did it exceptionally well. So yes, Since I Left You. I know it well. I don't know this stuff. You're like the first couple of tracks on it because they're quite funny. I'm not well disposed to them because of the internet fandom that I've experienced of them. But that's not the band's fault, right? So mm. that's the point of music club, isn't it? That we listen to stuff properly and yes. possibly for the first time properly. Yeah. So, and we discover new stuff. So yeah, let's do it. I genuinely know nothing about them. So that's been 1988, and that's been Green. Hope you've enjoyed the conversation. A reminder that you'll find links in the episode description to playlists on Spotify and on YouTube of lots of music that we've been talking about, things other than REM tonight. You'll also find links there to listen to Green, which um, I think we all recommend that you do. We'll be back some point in the next couple of weeks with another Singles Club. Till then, it's good night from Will. Thank you, good night. Good night from Chris. Night. And a fond farewell from Nick. Laters. Till next time, take care.